The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. Hi guys, just a brief note. While we were recording this, there was a brief period where the sound cut out while I was reading the cast list for Johnny Mnemonic. Couldn't find any workaround for that, so... I just sort of edited really quickly there, so you're only going to get like a truncated version of the cast list. Not that it's super important. Daniel pretty much goes over the primaries anyway in his plot summary, so uh, just letting you know that it was not a editing oversight by me. It was just something that couldn't be helped. Thanks, guys. Hope you enjoy the podcast. They must be destroyed on sight! Okay, we're back. It is episode 71 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Lee Russell, and I'm joined by my co-host, Daniel Harper. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Unfortunately, I did just enter the uh, mobile infantry, so uh, oh. you know I'm probably not going to live much longer. But. but if you do, you'll be a full citizen. I, I, will, I will have voting rights after I get out, so there is, yeah. there is that. So uh, you can vote for uh, Fascist A or Fascist B, you know, and yeah. it'll be awesome. Well, that's kind of what, what being an American is these days. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fuck. So we're on our last little break episode. We're going to be uh, jumping head first into Spaghetti Westerns after this, uh, which should be a lot of fun. But this episode, we're going to be doing two 1990s sci-fi films. We're going to be doing Johnny Mnemonic from 1995 and Starship Troopers from 1997, both uh, suggestions from Daniel. So uh, this should be a lot of fun. Um, I, I like to think of this as the Dina Meyer episode, personally. Yeah, uh, that was kind of the that was kind of the the genesis of this was uh, you know, I was chatting with someone on Twitter, and uh, who was uh, you know kind of talking about Starship Troopers, and I said, well, if it means I get to shower with Dina Meyer, I'm totally down for this feature, you know. Yeah, and uh, then kind of became like, oh yeah, let's do uh, this and Johnny Mnemonic, you know. So uh, that that yeah. was really the genesis of this. Sometimes just chatting with me on Twitter means that we do weird um, oddball episodes that they must be destroyed on site. So keep that in mind, people who might want to follow me on Twitter. Yeah, throw all kinds of suggestions at them. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're we're gonna get into that. Uh, I don't know if you have anything else you want to talk about that you've uh, watched as of late. No, not really. Um, I talked about a most recent intermission episode, so right on. Yeah, I, I've I, watched quite a bit of stuff, but then I did the intermission episode, so it's all done. So there's nothing to talk about. <laughs> um, other than that, it's really just been uh, my wife has been watching a lot of the uh, Bones TV show, so oh, I yeah. just kind of come home from work and there's just a new episode of Bones. It's just kind of always playing. So oh god, um, they did one on the JFK assassination, um, and I made her uh, let me watch that one. So she had watched it. And she's like, "Oh yeah, because I just did a shabcast about the uh, JFK assassination, um, and that will be part one will be up as this episode airs." But uh, <laughs> Shannon's like, "Oh yeah, I knew you were into that, so you should watch that." And then I, or she didn't say it. I just said, "Well, now I fucking have to watch how this terrible show is going to treat this JFK assassination," <laughs> and it was terrible. So you know, there is that. I feel sorry for you if that's playing in your house constantly. God damn, that show sucks. <laughs> yeah. I love my wife, and it's it's awesome, and she knows exactly how stupid it is, but she just kind of appreciates the stupidity. But you know, that's kind of that's kind of what my life has been like for the last week or so. It's you know, bones just playing on the on the TV. 
Well, that, that that's like uh, that's like that other fucking show that we've raked on before. The, the guy who just got fired for uh, kicking a producer or whatever. What is it? Uh, it's it's one of those CSI ripoffs, but uh, well, I don't know. It's that one that's been on for like twenty years now. That's not Law and Order, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, where they're where they're catching serial killers in their uh, jet plane every every week. Oh, oh, Criminal Minds. Criminal, criminal minds. minds. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah junk food. It, it's it's. It is. It's pure TV junk food. Well, it's. It's. I mean, you know, I don't have a problem with TV junk food. I no, mean, it's, it's fine. Like, it's. It's perfectly acceptable. Just kind of like, yeah, it's dumb, but it's like, it's whatever. You know. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I, I have my vices. I, you know, I'm not going to complain. You know, do your thing. Like, enjoy, enjoy your show. Just don't take it seriously. Fuck, I, I watch titty comedies and stuff. You know, and so, yeah. sometimes take some of them seriously. So, I mean, uh, I, I've got no real ground to stand on, really. <laughs> I, I did. I did actual research on a 1986 Canadian tax shelter titty film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I don't have any complaints about how anyone else chooses to spend their time. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we can just uh, jump right into the reviews. I don't think we have anything else. I think there might have been one or two comments. Uh, I'm just been strapped for time this week, so I'm not going to get to them. I will get to them in our next episode. Apologies to anyone who had some comments sitting there, but of course, as always. They must be destroyed on site on Facebook, and uh, it's the best place to uh, leave comments. Just join the group. It's free. Get in. No one on there is an asshole, and uh, there's some fun conversations once in a while there anyway. It's yeah. a small group, so, you know. Yeah, come on. Come on. Suggest stuff. Add your friends. Uh, really, we'd like to get... Now, one thing I noticed, I was looking at the YouTube links to the... I was looking at your YouTube page where all the um, YouTube versions of these podcasts go, and I noticed that all the sex comedies had way more um, listen, way more watches, mm-hmm. like like 10 times the number of watches than the other stuff. And I think it's because you put, like, you know, uh, images of, like, bikini-clad women, and I think people yeah. clicked on those. So I'd be curious to see how long people, people watch some of those, but... Uh, you know, um, uh, I think no, I think really what that means is we should just put bikini-clad models on the background images of all the podcast episodes, whether they're sex comedies or not. You know, and then I could find some like really provocative shots of Dina Meyer and put them on. Uh, there might be one or two of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Uh, from uh, from from these movies, uh, particularly yeah. structured troopers. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think also it's it's partly uh, people doing what we. Do for uh, trying to get obscure sex comedies from the 1980s and stuff like that. Oh, YouTube's probably got a dirty VHS of it somewhere, and so someone's looking for Bikini Drive-In, and then they stumble on ours first thing. Yeah, could be it. Yeah, so, you know, hey, if you're listening because of that, congratulations, you found us. Yeah, especially if you stuck around. Yeah. I think we jump into our first cinematic masterpiece here, Johnny Mnemonic from 1995. Good morning. This is your wake-up call. The year is 2021. It is no longer safe to transmit information. Phones, computers, and satellites are all vulnerable. But there is a solution. Your storage capacity? I can carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. Input the data into the brain of a human courier. Like Johnny Mnemonic. Hit me. How do you fit all that in your head anyway? I had to dump a chunk of long-term memory. You had to dump a chunk of what? My childhood. What are you doing? Making a long-distance phone call. 
got the goods, Ralphie. Now I just want to get them out of my head. Now, in a future... We locked on him. ...where those who control the information control the world. I've been charged with recovering the head of the mnemonic courier. Everyone wants what is stored in Johnny's head. Double cheese anchovies? Ralphie! You were waiting for me, Ralphie. Time is running out. I'm a dead man if I don't get this out of my head. If I can get it out. How? A cranial drill and a pair of forceps. For the future's most wanted fugitive. In the head. Johnny Mnemonic. Um, did I already give away what my thoughts are on this fault? <laughs> With that start. I- I think this is going to be a really interesting episode. I'm just going to leave it at that. Like, okay. you know, yeah, I yeah. did not recommend these because I thought they were masterpieces. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. Okay. Uh, directed by Robert Longo. Beat Takashi Kitano, uh, as he's usually known, Beat Takashi. Uh, I didn't realize he was in this. When I rewatched it, I was like, what the fuck is he doing in this movie? Because I, I know him from Battle Royale and Battle Royale 2. And right, he's also right. a really fairly pro- prolific director of... Uh, Yakuza movies in Japan, and he's like a TV host and all kinds of other stuff. And um, he even played uh, Zatoichi, the blind swordsman, in the modern adaptation of that film that he directed, of course. So um, oh, wow. it was fun to yeah. see him in this. Um, Dennis Akiyama as Sinji, Dolph Lundgren as the street preacher, uh, Henry Rollins, famous lead singer of Black Flag and uh, Rollins Band as Spider. Uh, Barbara Sukawa as Anna Kalman and the great Udo Kier as Ralphie. And uh, I'll let you get to the synopsis there, Daniel. Johnny, no last name, is a mnemonic courier in the far-off year of 2021, a time in which corporations rule human society, the U.S. government is no more, and a devastating illness called Neural Attenuation Syndrome, or NAS, has become an epidemic. Johnny has a piece of hardware in his head that allows him to carry a whopping 80 gigabytes of data, 160 with a boost, at the cost of having his entire childhood erased. Johnny finds himself in a bit of a pickle, however, as his latest clients feed him double the data that even his expanded capacity allows, which will quickly bleed into his synapses and kill him, which wouldn't even necessarily be a problem except for the fact that the people he's working for have stolen the data from Pharmacom and agents of the corporation are willing to kill to get that information back. Johnny flees, runs into 90s badass chick Jane, who offers her protection services to him for 50 grand, and finds himself thrust into the underworld as he attempts to get the data out of his head before he kills him. There's also a contract killer Jesus, named, played by Dolph Lundgren, a counter-revolutionary leader named J-Bone, played by Ice-T, an intelligent dolphin hacker modified by military technology, an underground medical professional played by Henry Rollins, and the one and only Udo Kier as a major bad guy. All that and some anti-Japanese hysteria to boot. Is this the most 1995 movie ever? It'll do until the next comes along. 
Yeah, I, I think I think that's a perfectly apt question because this is one of the more dated 1990s movies I've ever seen in my life at this point. I haven't seen this in, Jesus, it must be almost 15 years. Well, the movie's 21 years old, so yeah, like... 18, 19, 20 years, probably, right? You know? Yeah, there, there were, like, there was absolutely, first time I watched it, there was no rewatch value for me. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> I, I like it, I like it a lot more now, watch, rewatching it, but that's mostly for Dina Meyer uh, uh, and, and, and the rest of the cast around Keanu Reeves, because Jesus Christ, is he. I just forgot how bad he was. Like, it, it just becomes like a kind of a cliche that he's just so bad. He was really, really bad back in the 90s. You can look at him here, and he's terrible. He's not, I mean, it was kind of like after The Matrix, you know? I mean, I, I think he does get better with time. I don't think that he's that now. But yeah. I think there's, you know, Keanu Reeves was someone who definitely needed a director to really kind of, like, help him out with some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think we're we're gonna land on this, <laughs> and I, sorry, I'm just jumping in here. For, you know, feet first. Part of the issue we we're running into with this film is the director of this film, uh, Robert Longo, is not a film director. Yeah. He's an artist. He's he's an artist. He did some music videos. He did some other stuff. This is the only feature length film he ever directed, as far as I can tell, and uh, it shows. The, the, this is not someone. This is someone who is very capable of doing the visuals. I mean, some of the visuals in this are really, I think, compelling. There's some really interesting stuff going on thematically. William Gibson himself actually wrote the screenplay for this, which I think really shows in this. But he has no facility with narrative or with actors. And I don't think there's any actor in this film. I mean, I mean, Dina Meyer does her best. This is her very first film, by the way. Yeah. But you, you notice, like, almost everyone in this film is not an actual actor. Henry Rollins is not an actor. Ice-T, at this point, was not an actor. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you got Udo Kier, you got, you got some, you know, a lot of the Japanese guys and that sort of thing. But, I mean, you know, basically, it's Keanu Reeves and then a bunch of people who are not actually actors, who are new to the business. I think that's kind of key. I think if you had people with a little bit more experience kind of surrounding this. And if you, and if uh, Keanu Reeves himself were able to give a more compelling and interesting performance, and if the writer, and if Gibson had been more interested in the characters and less interested in the world, then I think that it might have been a lot more interesting and a lot better quality. But as it is, it kind of it doesn't even feel like a movie. It just kind of feels oh. like a, a sequence of stuff that happens. It's often pretty and interesting, but there, there's no there's no movie here. Sorry, I just completely just laid my entire thesis out. <laughs> Uh, what I was going to say is, uh, what this really reminds me of is where video games were going in in the nineties. Uh, you were you were getting away from the uh, sort of point and click adventures, and you were getting some of them were sort of evolving to the point where they could actually have like you know really bad like video, but video nonetheless of like actual film video put into the game to to progress the storyline. So you had you had stuff like Wing Commander 3 and stuff like that that had like Mark Hamill and Malcolm McDowell in it and shit like that. This feels like all the sort of video interludes in a video game that you're playing. And uh, I mean, it, it, it runs on that sort of cyberpunk thing that William Gibson's known for, like the Neuromancer and uh, some of the characters are from some of his other stories, apparently slightly rewritten. Yeah, uh, I don't Do you know William Gibson's fiction at all? I know, I know, I know it a little bit. I've I've read a couple of his stuff. Some some of his things way back when, though, like sure, a long sure. time ago. 
Um, I went through a, I mean, I won't say a serious William Gibson phase. I went through a bit of a William Gibson phase in my kind of um, teens and 20s, as as many people did in their teens and 20s. Yeah. It's an excellent time to discover William Gibson. So, But I actually reread the short story, John Mnemonic, before recording this podcast. Um, it's a short, short story. It's not, it wasn't, mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, I just basically took an hour or half an hour this afternoon and, and plowed through it. Jane is based on uh, one of the lead characters in Neuromancer, is a character named Molly. Um, yeah. That Molly character is also kind of one of the co-leads of the Jenna Mnemonic short story. Um, a bunch of the really good ideas. I mean, you know, it's funny how much of the stuff that's actually really good in this movie is lifted directly out of the short story. But all of the really bad ideas, like, for instance, the neural attenuation syndrome stuff, is not in the short story. Um, much of the kind of the, the really stupid kind of structure of the story. The uh, As much as I'm going to respect Dolph Lundgren, the idea of like a... Street preacher, serial killer, uh, contract killer. Um, it's not necessarily the the most interesting thing that you could put in a movie. Uh, that's not in the that's not in the short story. Yeah. The short story is much more brutal and kind of interesting, and and kind of gives it a lot more um, kind of interesting context. Is really about this world, but a lot of the stuff like the uh, the low techs and um, you know this kind of side society, this underground society. The uh, normal seepage is played a lot better in the short story. And um, it's really Gibson just kind of adapting these ideas for kind of what he perceived to be this kind of, you know, mass audience and just kind of missing the mark. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see William Gibson write another screenplay. I'd love to see him kind of do more of this kind of now. But, I mean, it's pretty clear that this was this was kind of a swing and a miss, you know, for everybody well, involved. Also, from what I understand is they basically took Gibson's script and butchered it up and added stuff to it that he didn't even put in it, apparently. Mm. So... Uh, like this movie, from what I understand, was originally supposed to be a, a million and a half dollars. It was supposed to be right. like a small art film. The the company threw thirty million at it, twenty six to thirty million, I guess thirty million after advertising and stuff. But but yeah, th- th- this movie had a lot of studio tampering. I mean, even down to the soundtracks. There there's three separate soundtracks for this movie, <laughs> and de- and depending on which version you watch, whether it's the American theatrical version or the version that is over for made for Japanese audiences, you get totally different soundtracks. And you get like a lot of different footage, a lot of different stuff that changes the story around. Apparently I think it was Beat Takashi's uh, role was, it was either his or the uh, other lead, Dennis Akiyama, uh, one, one or the other, I can't remember which one it is, but their roles were like way more expanded in, in right. the actual, in for Asian markets. And, a lot of stuff was changed around. There, there was a lot of tampering in this film, and and you can kind of see it. Like you can see the amateur directing and the tampering at the same time. It kind of feels right. very, again, it feels very fragmented. It feels like you took all the narrative scenes from a mid '90s video game between the pointing and clicking and shooting or whatever you're doing in the game, and they just lined them all up. So a lot of the stuff sort of comes out of context, kind of feels weird. But even the non-actors that are around Keanu Reeves are acting up a storm compared to him. Like right. He is so fucking wooden. I mean, yeah. he's and, and and to a degree, it sort of makes sense in that like he has no memory. He has no so so. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, know, you could sort of like go, well, he just kind of doesn't have a personality because he doesn't have any memory. But then it's like, no, no, no. He's just like he's just bad in this movie. And I mean, it's just where Keanu Reeves was as an actor at this point. You know, he just wasn't very good at this point. And how many? Uh, in fact, uh, he was terrible at this point. Can we just yeah. say? Oh he yeah, is, he was. He is, he's awful. He is. He is more wooden than fucking Groot. Like that's how. <laughs> <you know. laughs> but uh, do, do we even have to make like the obvious jokes of there was definitely a lot more storage space in that head of his, you know, like, <laughs> right, right. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, 
Uh, Dina Meyer is really good in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is her very first uh, film role. You can definitely tell why she kind of became a star, and she's still acting today. I kind of looked yeah. her up, and I'm like, yeah, she does a ton of TV and stuff, even now. Like, I, I don't like necessarily pay attention to, like, mainstream television anymore, so I sometimes Google it and go, oh, whatever happened to Dina Meyer? And it's like, oh, wait, she's been on this, the lead on this TV show for, like, the last eight years. Oh, what do I know, <laughs> right? Yeah, and she's, uh, she's, like, 47 now, and apparently she uh, bathes in the same pool of, uh, of the blood of virgins that Julianne Moore bathes in, because, man... She is not aged. <laughs> she, she she has not. She still looks great. She's got a ton of personality in this. I mean, she's kind of playing generic '90s action chick. And I mean, honestly, she's not great in this film. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think when we get to Starship Troopers, I think she's much much better in Starship Troopers than she is yeah. here. But this is her very first film role, and I think she's. I mean, she looks phenomenal next to uh, Keanu Reeves. Like oh, Keanu yeah. is so bad. Henry Rollins does a does a really credible job mm-hmm. here. I really like his performance in it. Ice T, you can tell why kind of he became a star. You know, yep. when kind of kind of he went on to to. I mean. He's been on SVU for like fifteen years or whatever yeah. it is now, you know. So. Well, well, he and he and Rollins both have the charisma and personality where you could see that if they if they kept that acting, they'd actually get somewhere, and they both have. So yeah, yeah. Actually, I know I know it's fashionable. I hate on Henry Rollins. I, I quite like Henry Rollins. Um, I think oh yeah, he's same. He's a talented guy. Um, <laughs> about the only thing I remembered from this film, other than uh, Dina Meyer. Uh, kind of being badass and and um the scene in the bar with uh, Udo Kier that was that was kind mm-hmm. of the thing I remembered as a you know kind of watching it as a teenager and then the uh the one line reading I really remembered was the um the bit where um uh, Henry Rollins is our spider is um you know it's like oh how are you going to get the thing out of my head and he's like oh with a pair of pliers and a wrench you know essentially <laughs> whatever the line is um I always thought that was like a great like you know think Keanu was like fuck that you know, and, um, in fact, I think my line reading just there was better than the one he gives in the film. Oh God, you you can't fucking identify Keanu Reeves because he just and and when what little character he has, he's just a whiny bitch, really. Like he mm-hmm. just everything he just whines about everything bad that's happened to him, and everything that's bad that's happened to him is a result of his own stupid decisions to be carrying this fucking hard drive around his fucking head in the first place. Well, the short story, and I mean, really the thing that Gibson is trying to get at is that, you know, people are just kind of forced. I mean, in this kind of future world, he's trying to kind of say that, like, people have literally, like, sold their humanity in order to, to, like, yeah. to this technology. I mean, we're all just kind of become slaves to this, like, corporate ideology and this kind of, like, profit given thing and life is cheap because if the corporation is done with you then you aren't you know you're just not going to live very much longer yeah. he's very good at portraying that world in the um in the novels and in the short stories i think that early william gibson i mean the, the burning chrome trilogy is really good at that or the sprawl trilogy i guess is what they call it but um this is just i mean reeves just can't sell it at all i mean i, yeah. I think with a with a more credible actor i think this would come across better but I think you're right, is that Reeves really comes across as this just whiny-ass kid, you know, basically. Do you know who was in contention for the role at the time? <laughs> I would love to hear. Okay, first off was Christopher Lambert. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you, you could kind of go either way with that one, because in a lot of ways he's kind of as wooden as, as Reeves is in, in some respects. He would have been better. I mean, uh, who was the other? <laughs> The other pick was far superior. Was Val Kilmer, and he turned it down for Batman Forever. Well, it's probably a good choice for Val Kilmer. Yeah, but I mean, well, ironically, Johnny Mnemonic would have been better with Val Kilmer, but Val Kilmer's career would have been better with Batman. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah. so it's kind of yeah. God. I mean, Christopher Lambert, I can sort of, 
the one thing I'll say about Keanu Reeves' acting is he sells the, and this is this is going to sound like faint praise, he sells the quiet moments. You know, yeah. like the bits where he's like uh, hacking the computer and he, like you can't see his face and he's kind of got the gloves on and he's kind of doing the, <laughs> like the, the actual physical acting. That was the one bit where I'm actually like, you know what, this is, this is, somebody actually cared about this. Like, like, like somebody, like the stuff where he's not talking, the stuff where it's just this kind of visual uh, idea. I mean, obviously, um, Minority Report kind of pushes that to its, like, kind of logical conclusion, really does, like, the good version of that. Mm-hmm. But that's really the stuff that, like, clearly that's where a bunch of the money went. And clearly, um, I think uh, Reeves, you know, it, it's hard to, like, put on this kind of weird looking mask and these weird looking gloves. And um, you know, manipulate little data screens, you know, that aren't there, yeah. and look credible. And I think Keanu Reeves looks credible in that, you know. And as the kind of like computer hacker guy, that's where kind of the performance comes alive for me. Like that was I actually noticed. Like, oh yeah, he actually looks like he's doing some interesting stuff as an actor here. I think he just doesn't have any emotive ability in his voice, and I think that's, that's kind of the issue, you know. Yeah. Um. So I think Val Kimmer or Christopher Lambert would have been better in the role, but I don't know that they could have sold those sequences in the way that Keanu Reeves did. Um, one thing I was kind of thinking about when I even recommended this was, I remember before The Matrix came out, and people yeah. kind of any cool news, you know, they were kind of talking about The Matrix, and kind of set photos were showing up, and people kept thinking, like, it was like, literally, you'd see, like, comment threads where people were like, oh my god, the last time, like, Keanu Reeves is a hacker who goes into this, like, virtual world and does kung fu, and people were literally like looking back to John and Monica and going like, "This is gonna be shit, man. Yeah. This is gonna be total <laughs> shit." Um, so it is kind of interesting how this movie, being as bad as it was, actually heightened people's response to the Matrix because when they found out that wasn't complete shit, suddenly it was amazing, you know, because yeah, you know, people were the expectations were so low for that. But um, <laughs> there's some interesting. I mean, I think there, I think there is some interesting stuff. I think again, interesting little ideas kind of tucked into it. Uh, neural attenuation syndrome stuff is just kind of. I mean, it's such that needs metaphor thing that uh, was just doing in the 90s. Yeah, it's a lazy plot device, really. I mean, I mean it just yeah. gives you something to go towards. I mean, it's just a lazy kind of, we need to get them from point A to point B in some way that makes sense to the viewer, well, it, right? It, it, it Really, all it does is say, like, this is why we can't just erase the shit from your head. You mm-hmm. know? This is why we have to, like, try to maintain this. And so it's, 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 a, it's attempting to kind of maintain some dramatic tension. With the, in the hands of a better actor, it would actually like give Keanu Reeves something to play. It would have given like how much is my life worth? Is my life worth getting rid of this cure, which can actually help people? Um, the film does nothing with that because the film wasn't really interested in that. The film is interested in its production design and in its you know kind of the, the stringing together the ideas. I really like the uh, the metaphor you give where the, the computer game you know kind of cutscenes because it does kind of yeah. feel that way. There's one sequence in this film that looks like it's literally shot in a dressed up shopping mall. <laughs> I, I was I was watching the film and I'm like, holy shit! Did they shoot that in like the Galleria somewhere? Somewhere, you know, <laughs> like it just looks like very, um, you know, it looks like they literally sat in the, uh, the lobby of a mall and just put up a couple of like drapes and went like, yeah, uh, this is this is this post-apocalyptic society, can't you see? You know, yeah, That's yeah. What it looks like. Um, I was really kind of thinking like this would be a perfect movie to do a commentary track for because probably like, would. Yeah. So much there's so much just little stuff in the corners that would be so much fun to get drunk and uh, make fun of, but. um yeah. yeah. What do you think of Dolph Lundgren in this? 
I think he's good. Honestly, I think Lundgren's very underrated performer, honestly, because, I mean, he's made most, his, like, 75% of his career has been just doing these direct-to-video things throughout most of the 90s and 2000s. I've watched a handful of them, and some of them are actually pretty good. He gets opportunity to, like, stretch himself, even if the rest of the movie's total shit. And he has fun doing it. He obviously enjoys what he does. He's he's obviously quite happy just being in these shitty movies because he seems to have a lot of fun in them. And he's having a lot of fun here by the looks of things. And I liked the character. Like, again, there's that problem where every other character looks like fucking gold compared to Keanu Reeves. But he does a really good job in this. That's one of the things I forgot about that I liked in this film. And then I revisited it and I was like, oh yeah, Dolph Lundgren's here. It's this crazy ultimate combination of religion and technology perverted together. So there, there was actually maybe something a little deeper going on there. And there's there's an attempt at a metaphor there, but it also just kind of becomes, you know, he's the big unstoppable killer guy. Yeah. He's a, again, it's sort of, it's sort of an idea and an, and an image that doesn't quite go somewhere. I mean, it feels like a, it kind of predates this, but it kind of feels like something that should have been in Sin City, like a, like a cast-off from Sin City, you know? Yeah. Like that, it, it, kind of, it kind of doesn't quite fit into this world in the way that I wish it did. Well, have you, um, ever seen, uh, have you ever seen that movie that is actually a Dolph Lundgren movie? It was in the 90s, I believe, or very late 80s. I, I Come in Peace. And it was. <laughs> I remember that VHS cover. Like I always wanted to rent it, but never actually rented it. So, but but I um, one day I, I was actually thinking about that recently. I saw the title somewhere. I went, "Oh shit!" Yeah. Lee and I need to do that so it'll give me a chance to finally watch that movie. So. Also known as uh, Dark Angel in some some avenues, but it, essentially. Dolph Lundgren's character here is kind of a character you'd see in a movie like that because I Come in Peace is essentially a sci-fi slasher movie mm-hmm. uh, about an alien that comes down to Earth and pumps people full of drugs to harvest the endorphins from their brain, apparently. But that that's the kind of, like, you know, unstoppable sci-fi version of the slasher right. killer and, and I mean, Lundgren's version of that here. It's basically the Terminator, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, and, and, I mean, I'll just... I mean, I'll just I'll just put my finger on this. This movie, I mean, though it's made '95, and even though it screams 1995 in its production design and its like kind of performance and just kind of what it looks like, you know, it's very much of the '80s. I mean, you know, the short story was written in '81, and it's um completely kind of um surrounded in those ideas about you know the kind of the early to mid '80s, kind of culturally, not least. And I mentioned this in the in the kind of synopsis, in the in the kind of just Japan, like this simultaneous obsession with Japan as a you know, technophilic, fetishistic future. And in the, like, terrifying, like, <laughs> they're going to take over the world kind of thing. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it says something that the, all the villains in the film are Japanese and none of the heroes are. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it kills the film. I mean, I think it, it kind of works in context, but it's not nearly as racist as something like Rising Sun, which kind of comes oh. out of that same culture. Uh, Rising Sun might be one of the most racist things that's ever existed. Um, and we should absolutely cover it at some point. But, um, yeah, it kind of draws from that same thing. And it, it, that was definitely something that felt uncomfortable to me, you know. Um, despite the fact that it was nice to see a bunch of, um, you know, like really talented Asian actors and Japanese actors in it. Um, it was kind of like, and then the Japanese people show up and they just want to kill us all. Like yeah. that's what, you know, that's kind of the the uh, the mentality that the film kind of gives us. So. Well, and even um, the way it uses corporate culture in this is very much akin to some of the worst examples of Japanese corporate culture, where in Japan itself, people if they don't have a job for their for their entire life in some corporation, they 
feel like they're useless, and they had high suicide rates, part- yep. partially because of that back in the uh, early 2000s, at the very least. Yeah, back, back around this time, I mean, Japan was... I mean, it's interesting how Japan kind of went from this unstoppable powerhouse in the 80s to being kind of in this in this economic decline in the 90s, as, as mm-hmm. like, basically they just found out that the kind of pressure they were putting their society through was just unsustainable. That's a really interesting... I mean, it, it's kind of funny how, like, again, it doesn't feel like it's made 95. It feels like it's made 85 to some degree, yeah. you know? Which, you know, it's just... I mean, it's kind of reflective. I mean, it's, it's the science fictional future. I find it hard to blame William Gibson for, for stuff like that, just because he's, you know, he's very clearly... Um, you know, sympathetic to this, and so much of this isn't really in the short stories, but it really comes across in the film, you know? Yeah. Um, the short story is a lot more subtle, it's a lot more interesting, because it actually portrays these guys as kind of real characters. The The structure of the movie is very much not the structure of the short story. I mean, I'll, I'll leave it at that as well. You know, the film, I mean, to what degree it was written by William Gibson, and to what degree it was written by somebody else, I don't know. You know, once you kind of put actors in this, and once you kind of portray it in this way, and you kind of like flatten out all the characters and everything, this turns into this, they, they become caricatures and it becomes a lot more difficult um mm. yeah well for, even, for, for the, even for the, like the monofilament whip thing that's like built into the guy's thumb you know yeah in the short story it's it, it feels like this kind of interesting cultural thing it feels like this kind of character bit you know this guy just has this thing whereas in the movie hey it's like you know well you got your thumb chopped off because you know you're in this like japanese corporate structure and you're a yakuza member you know, which kind of feels a little racist, and then um, it just kind of becomes a gimmick, you know, mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, so it is kind of like it's almost like just the way it's used sometimes depends on kind of how I feel about it. Um, so, anyway, sorry, yeah. I kind of refer you. Yeah, I can't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so that's what, sorry. Do, we, do we need to talk more about Janet Amani? Kind of. No, um, I'm. I'm we can some more praise on Dina Meyer, although, like, um, um, man, is she wearing a ton of makeup in the in her first scene? You know, man, she really wears a chainmail uh, fucking blouse very well. <laughs> she does. She does. I mean, how many people in the world can pull off chainmail blouse except for Dina Meyer? Yeah, know? and I um, wish she had uh, pulled it off more often. Um, well, we're going to talk about Starship Troopers in a minute, and you know yeah, we'll see yeah. how we'll see how we feel about that. But um, Dina Meyer is clearly one of the better actors. I mean, you could make the argument the best actor in the film. You know, yeah. it's not even that she's great, but she's kind of better than the people around her. She does have to carry a lot of this film just because Keanu Reeves sure the fuck isn't carrying the film. Yeah. She actually is able to imbue the kind of stereotype of the '90s badass action chick. You know, yeah. Um, also, another thing in the short story, Johnny Mnemonic is not a particularly badass guy. I mean, he's just kind of a dude. You know, Molly, the character in the in the short story, kind of gets all the action scenes for herself. Here, he kind of gets to be the kind of kung fu guy, and he yeah. gets a lot of the action scenes for himself. That's something that I really wish they'd kept in the short story. I really wish here Jane had been kind of the, the real badass. Like, she'd gotten to do the heroic stuff, and then, you know, Johnny's just kind of wandering around, like, trying not to get killed. It would, um, be, it would, would uh, really yeah, it would have made a lot more sense too. I mean, because if I were her, why the fuck would I be hanging around this motherfucker? I mean, jeez. Yeah. I mean, just just the fact that they try to tack on this idea that she's interested in, in him halfway through the film. No, I don't think she would be. Honestly, <laughs> I don't think the Molly character really gets on with Johnny in the short story, but she totally gets with uh, the lead character of Neuromancer. So, you know, really I'm going to recommend don't watch this movie, just go read Neuromancer. That's yeah. the that's the, the the better the better use of your time, you know. <laughs> uh so this was a, a Canadian American production. 
if you look closely, a lot of the landmarks from uh, Montreal and Toronto are quite visible. There's the uh, Union Station in Toronto is especially uh, prominent in this one. But uh, it's supposed to be Beijing and Newark, so... Uh, Never forget that. The free state of Newark. <laughs> yeah, the free state of Newark, yeah. Uh, the budget was $26 million. Domestic box office was $19 million, but after uh, worldwide uh, sales uh, were tabulated, 52 So it made its money back, but uh, it was not considered a big success. I mean, you, you got to figure in how much of the uh, marketing budget was in there. And this was, this was a heavily marketed film, too. Like, yeah. this was marketed through, I think, just about every division of Sony, to some extent, apparently. Uh, there was they a... were trying to they were trying to turn this into something, you know. And it, I mean, I remember the ads um, back in the day because I was I was in high school. I was I guess a sophomore in high school when this came out, and I remember this being a big, you know, kind of hyped movie. You know, this had a big web presence in 1995. One of the first movies like... really to have that. Yeah, we're, I think we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to Starship Troopers as well, yeah. the influence of the early web. This is actually, I mean, it's, it is kind of interesting that William Gibson was someone who, despite the fact that he coined the term cyberspace, and like so many of his early works in particular are very intimately connected with kind of technology, he had no like concept of what the actual technology was um, and kind of had to be coerced into doing early internet advertising. He did like, a prodigy like chat about the movie when it came out or something like that and, and did some marketing for the movie on the internet. Um, and it was like kind of a big marketing, big deal thing. He kind of hated it. And, uh, you know, but it was, it was kind of this early, like it just, you just got to kind of look back to the fact that like, you know, Oh, I can go on like a web chat and chat with William Gibson about this new movie that's coming out. It was like this big deal on the internet. Yeah. So he's sort of like a, uh, almost kind of a, to a smaller degree, a technophobe like, uh, Ray Bradbury was. Yeah, he's very much, I mean, you know, he, he's much more interested in kind of the, the societies and the people. Like, I mean, he's interested in technology, but he just makes up the details. It's not, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of about, it's about these ideas of like what data connectivity will do to us as opposed to like, you know, actually using it himself. Yeah, the, the actual, the actual mechanic, mechanics involved in it, he's not interested in all. He's just interested right. in how it actually would affect people. Yeah. Unless you have anything else to say about this one, I think we can move on. <laughs> Dina Meyer's great. Uh, Udo Kier. Udo Kier is, is excellent. Uh, is Udo Kier? You know, uh, what gets, else you have to say Until he, he gets his uh, a quarter of him chopped off, he's he's, he's solid. <laughs> the monofilament <laughs> whip is kind of badass. It's it's fun. Yeah. Um, you've got uh, cars fall, flaming cars falling from the sky. Yeah, you know, certain. It was weird. Um, and there's a dolphin that is a computer hacker and and then that's from that's actually from one of his stories isn't it so it's not even a ripoff from uh sequest dsv <laughs> right. no uh the the dolphin i mean the dolphin is actually in the short story john and Mike, yeah. you know i mean it's funny like i mean but it but it means something completely different it's not like this thing that's held off to the end it's just kind of an element of the story like they just kind of run across it and in fact there's even this kind of idea of like the uh, you actually get to talk about how the uh, the military hardware, you know, is kind of fucked with this dolphin's brain and, you know, like that sort of thing. I mean, you know, the the dolphin is much more kind of sympathetic and pathetic in the short story yeah. than it is in the, in the in the movie. It's just kind of like, you know, you just kind of get the, the <laughs> computer graphics. Oh, by the way, the, um, the the graphics themselves, I mean, for 95 are really impressive. I mean, I'm just... Yeah. I was, I was kind of looking at particularly the hacking sequences. I mean, it looks very 1995, and I'm not going to pretend it doesn't. But it looked pretty good. I mean, it, it really did not... I, I did not look at it and go, well, it, well, clearly this is just a piece of shit. I mean, clearly there's a lot of energy that went into it. Like, seems, there's some good design. Seems a bit better than, like, Lawnmower Man. Uh, but it, 
But at the same time, I still kind of feel it feels more dated to me than the computer animation used in The Last Starfighter, for, for example. Sure, sure. I mean, I mean, it's 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 so obviously like that era where you know there was this. Let me put it this way: I will say this movie is better than Hackers. You know? mm. <laughs> um, Hackers is one of those all-time bottom twenty movies for me. I I hate that movie beyond all reason. My wife really loves that movie, but she's like, because it's just an excuse for pretty people to walk around to be pretty. And I'm like, okay, I get it, but it's incredibly stupid. You know. Yeah, I mean, uh, Angelina Jolie, back when she still had the baby fat on her and uh, was yeah, looking yeah. really nice and nice and round and uh, hot, yeah. That's but, it, we'll uh, put hackers on the list, and we'll talk about it at some point, you know? Oh, uh, yeah.
Uh, we'll move on now to Starship Troopers from 1997. For. But in the future, the greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all. Hey, Dick, what's going on? It's war! We're going to war! Now, the youth of tomorrow must travel across the stars to defend our world. We are a generation commanded by fate to defend humankind. Everyone fights, no one quits. We are going in with first wave. You smash the entire area, you kill anything that has more than two legs, you get me? We get you, sir! But they will face an enemy more devastating than any ever imagined. Mayday, Mayday, this is Roughneck 2 0 Render attack, sir. We need retrieval now. Someone made a damn mistake. No! The bugs laid a trap for us, and. Uh... Prepare for battle and journey to the front lines of the next frontier. Kill them all! Starship Troopers. Directed by Paul Verhoeven, uh, written by Edward Neumeyer, and based on the book by Robert A. Heinlein. It is starring Casper Van Dien as Johnny Rico, Dina Meyer as Dizzy Flores, Denise Richards as Lieutenant Carmen Ibanez, Jake Busey, all fucking teeth, uh, as Ace Levy, <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris doing his best uh, Nazi impersonation as Carl Jenkins, Clancy Brown, awesome in this, as Sergeant Zim. Seth Gillian is Sugar Watkins, Patrick Muldoon is Xander Barclow, and the awesome Michael Ironside as Gene Razak. Razak? 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 Fucking weird name. Okay, uh, go into the synopsis there, Daniel. Sure. And you know, by the way, has Clancy Brown ever been bad at anything ever? No, not that I, anything I can think of. Yeah, no, okay. All right, here we go. Johnny Rico lives a charmed life. His exploit's covered in a film that might as well be called Space Nazis 90210. <laughs> He's living in a fascist military dictatorship, about to graduate high school, with a father who thinks the military is scum, a best friend with psychic powers, and with two gorgeous young women battling for his affection. His girlfriend Carmen is tops in the class in math, meaning that she's about to enter the military as a hotshot space pilot, but Johnny is so hot in the subject, so when he joins up, he ends up a member of the Mobile Infantry, basically the Space Marines, under the whims of a hyper-violent drill instructor and subject to corporal punishment in the form of whipping if he gets out of line. There's a bright spot, though, although the lunk-headed Johnny is slow to realize it, in that Dizzy, the other girl for him, has joined the MI and is undergoing basic training at the very same base he's stationed at. What are the odds? Yes, this military is co-ed, as are the showers, and don't worry, there's a prominent scene demonstrating exactly that fact. Johnny quickly moves up the ranks during basic, but after his negligence gets a fellow recruit killed during a live fire exercise, he finds himself subject to a literal whipping and decides to wash out. 
This plan is short-lived, however, as before he can even find the door, it is revealed that the alien bug species has wiped out his hometown with an asteroid, and the Federation is at war. So it goes. The rest of the film progresses as Johnny moves up the military ranks, runs into some old friends and mentors, and basically kills a whole lot of fucking alien bugs who may or may not be intelligent. His relationship with Karn becomes strained, then absent, and Disney moves in for the meathead's hot, burning love as the military engagements grow ever more intense. In the end, Johnny becomes part of a mission to capture a brain bug. The intelligent cast of the alien species and human supremacy of the galaxy seems assured. Unfortunately, everyone seems to be wearing skulls on their caps. That's a Mitchell and Webb reference. Google it. Maybe there's some kind of subtle satire going on? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I'm glad I revisited this one, though, i got to say. Unlike Johnny Mnemonic, I had more fun watching this one. I forgot how much I liked this one. I, this is another one I haven't watched in quite a few years. So uh, here's where Dina Meyer really sort of comes into her own as, like, a big star, really. Um, again, I mean, she's she the best. Was in, she was in um, Johnny Mnemonic and Dragonheart, and then this was kind of her next big thing, you know? Yeah. So. And in this, she's, again, pretty much the best thing in it. She's the only, like, human character, really, in, in, <laughs> in right. the whole fucking thing. <laughs> you, could, you could say Michael Ironside or Clancy Brown, certainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could, I, could, I could accept those those arguments. But um, I would argue she's the best actor in the film. There's those scenes where she just gives a glance, you know, like where she's looking at Rico or, you know, she's looking at Rico mm-hmm. kissing uh, Ice Queen there. Um the the actual the, the the greatest acting talent that's shown in the film is that you actually believe she wants to fuck this guy and and it's actually interested in him as a person like I understand like going like yeah he's he's cute he's got he's got a square jaw I mean he's probably pretty I mean he's probably like simple in bed but at least a fairly like kind of he he would be kind of a fun lay like I understand her being horny for him but you actually get that like she actually likes the guy like as a person yeah. and that's the thing where like that takes acting talent yeah that's you gotta just, you know. she, and she sells it too and uh all I gotta say is between her and fucking uh Miss uh Ibanez yeah uh Denise Richards should have been the one in that fucking space coffin uh, that's all I gotta say. <laughs> she should have been the one shot out into the fucking into the fucking stardust. Uh, fucking ridiculous. I think that's part of Verhoeven's uh, satire in this, though, because I have read the original book and the Dizzy character is actually a male in the book. Like, there's not even well, that. The Dizzy character. The Dizzy character dies in the first like ten, mm. like the first like, what ten or fifteen pages of the book. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, by the way, um, our, our mutual friend Kit Power um, loves this movie, and um, so hopefully he and I will still be friends after the end of this podcast episode. <laughs> oh my god, uh, I watched this theatrically. Um, I actually mm-hmm. did see this when I was it was seventeen. I was seventeen when this movie came out. Um, I was a huge fan of the novel, and I really liked this when I first saw it. And um, boy, does this not hold up for me at all. I think this is a mess. You know, this is the other film other than RoboCop, which is the um, kind of Verhoeven uh, Neumeier kind of collaboration. RoboCop works really well because it is a film that is kind of like simultaneously a satire and a kind of effective kind of 80s action movie. And I mean, it's doing a whole lot of things at once. Um, but it really kind of is able to kind of be a lot of things and kind of sell everything. This. It doesn't work for me at all. I mean, it feels really undercooked and half baked. It feels like the the satire is um, the stuff like the uh, the, the kind of newsreel se- segments work. Mm-hmm. I really like that stuff. We're following this romantic subplot as if anybody gives a shit. First of all, yeah. Third of the film is based is, is based around that. You know, if uh, Denise Richards and Casper Van Dien were able to give 
reasonable performances. I mean, <laughs> I mean, um, Denise Richards might be a worse actress in this than uh, even uh, poor Keanu Reeves was in John Mnemonic. I would agree, <laughs> honestly. She's terrible. Um, she, she's she's good. The only sequence in which I actually buy her is the sequence where she's uh, running to the uh, space capsule towards the beginning when you first when she's in her uh, kind of pilot training, and she's really excited to go get to fly the uh, the spaceship. You know, that's the one thing that I actually bought her in. Um, I never bought her for a second in any other moment of the film. I think she. I think secretly her character is kind of a sociopath. When she first takes that ship out of fucking space dock and like gets three meters from ramming into the fucking space dock and killing everybody, and she just sort of laughs it off. This is not a person I want around me at all. No, uh, she's she's nuts. She's fucking nuts. She's probably she probably fucking pull a knife in bed. She'd <laughs> just kill you. I mean. Jesus well, Christ! No, uh, pulling a knife in bed would mean that she'd have to have some kind of personality, and she just. Uh, <laughs> You know, there are there are two reasons to to um, watch uh, Denise Richards in this film, and they are both covered for the entire film. So there's no reason to really uh, get get worked up too much about that. Well, just go yeah. watch that scene in Wild Things again and and get it over with. You know. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's lovely in the film. I'm not saying. I mean, I mean, she's not. She still. She still has a career. She's not a terrible actress. She's just terrible in this. I yeah. mean, you know, like it's. It's. She's just. She's just awful, and it really drags the film down because I never buy her for a second. Castor Van Dien is again somebody who is. I mean, not not awful. I mean, he has his range. He's trying to kind of do the satirical thing. He's kind of trying to do the. I'm playing a lunkhead because, like, the story involves me kind of being this, but um, doesn't really have the acting chops to pull off a to kind of hint at the the satire, to hint at the intelligence kind of underneath, and so just kind of comes across as really wooden. Um, not quite as bad as Keanu Reeves was in *Shining Mnemonic*. He's charming enough to kind of sell the movie. You can kind of like follow along with him, but I think really the issue is that just. Verhoeven didn't care about these actors. He cared about his satire, and he cared about the action stuff, and he cared about the other elements, and the kind of 90210 soap opera stuff just kind of like goes off into La La Land. And he's, I, and he, I you know, don't even wrote it. I think it was probably studios saying, we need this. We need a we need a love story. It can't just right. be marine shooting bugs and acting like fascists. Like... <laughs> You know, Ed Neumeyer uh, is the is the writer here, and again was was also the writer for um, RoboCop. And uh, I'm I don't know what I what I find interesting is that this was originally going to be a completely separate spec script that Neumeyer was writing, and then kind of realized it had a bunch of similarities to Starship Troopers, and so they just kind of pasted on the Starship Troopers like yeah. character names and the kind of the brand onto this. You know, it really like plot wise, it has nothing to do with the novel at all. Um, I did not reread the novel before <laughs> before recording this. Uh, we're recording a little bit early. I thought about like plowing back through it and kind of seeing what what um, you know what was going on. Um, I remember pretty well. I read it a bunch of times as a kind of teenager. I was a big Robert Heinlein fan as, as a teenager. This this definitely doesn't follow the novel at all. I mean, no, so. no, uh, you're right. Actually, what this movie does is it plays up the it it actually plays up the criticisms of the novel is what it does. It doesn't use the novel's plot really at all. It just uses kind of a skeleton of it. But what this does really is it's Verhoeven and Neumeier basically saying, yeah, this this, this novel, the criticism of this novel being a, uh, a pro-fascist screed, pro-military screed is what it's really about. We're going to make, we're going to, you know, we're going to craft a story around that. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, what I think is interesting, and I mean, actually more interesting even than the film, is that, you know, Heinlein, you know, writes lines like, uh, you know, the, the sequence where um, the the teacher is saying um, Michael Ironside in, in the film, but, you know, they're, they're two different characters in the, in yeah. the novel. Um, yeah. But um, the, the history and moral philosophy teacher at the beginning is uh, he has this long sequence where he's like, you know, nothing has been a better... Um, you know, solution to problems than violence. Violence is solving more problems than anything else. Heinlein means that completely straight. Like, there's no, mm-hmm. like, I mean, he's literally saying, like, violence is absolutely a solution to problems. Sometimes you have to use violence. Like, that's an argument he's making. Yeah, so so those lines are taken directly from the book. Yeah. Neumeier and Verhoeven are, like, transforming that into this kind of vision of this fascistic society. <laughs> but it also kind of makes it gives Dizzy the line, which is supposed to be from this character who is this kind of stupid girl. Sorry, this is a Heinlein novel, so of course there's a stupid girl asking questions. You know, there's this stupid girl kind of going, uh, you know, yeah, but like my mom told me that like violence never solves anything. And then he has to give the line to Dizzy because he's trying to like establish a character. But then Dizzy, it makes no sense coming from her based on kind of who she is in the movie and then kind of yeah. who she becomes later on. Like it, it just, it, it, there, there's no, so, so it kind of violates her character in some really, in, in, in a really bad way. And that's kind of what I mean by it's undercooked. It feels like it's kind of a lot of stuff that's kind of thrown together, but doesn't, doesn't quite gel. Like it feels like there could have been another two or three drafts to really kind of make this really sing. I mean, there's some really interesting stuff. I mean, the, the kind of fascist imagery, you know. The opening, the opening scene with the recruitment thing. I mean, that's directly shot for shot taken from Triumph of the Will. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious exactly what Verhoeven's going for with this. I mean, right. he, he put well, really, if, you, if if you've seen Triumph of the Will, well, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, even then, you got to be kind of, you got to be kind of fucking dull if you don't quite get the uh, <laughs> get the real message here. I mean, it's obviously a very. Um, satirical look at the quote-unquote fascist utopia that's presented in this. The interesting thing is that women, minorities, are all presented as equal as, as far as being part of the human race, you know? Yep. yep. Um, but, and so what they do is they use the bugs as the propaganda enemy right. in, mm-hmm. in the film, right? Like, they become the evil uh, oriental menace or yellow menace or whatever, right? You know, like, they... they, they Heinlein defenders will. I hope we get some Heinlein fans that really want to argue with me on this. You know, I, I would really love to like have this conversation on our Facebook page. So you know, leave comments. We'll, mm. we'll argue this. Heinlein absolutely was like fucking racist about um, you know Asian influence, and I mean he literally saw basically the the Chinese communists as breeding masses that were coming to like take over our way of life sort of thing, you know. Uh this is this is a writer who I deeply respected in my teens. You know, I'm kind of rejecting myself when I'm saying this. But um yeah, he had some, he had some issues with race. Even though like he he does the thing. I mean in in the novels are actually are pretty good about actually kind of including people of color and, and kind of like actually like uh, you know um I mean Johnny Rico in the novel is Juan Rico. And, yeah, uh, Filipino. Yeah. He's he's a Filipino. He speaks Tagalog and he lives in Buenos Aires. So yeah, yeah. Um, there is a little bit of like all the places that are other are just kind of all the same. The one, <laughs> the on ones, it's 1959. Yeah. We can kind of grade him on a curve a little bit. It's it's a Cold War thing. It's who we're opposed to. 
is is right. is, is the alien in, in in his narratives. Yeah. There's also uh, you know just kind of coming back to the film, uh, it is interesting that um, you know the the population of Buenos Aires you know is a pretty much very similar to what Southern California around 1997 seems to be like. Yeah. You know? <laughs> there is this kind of you know like oh yeah and then all the like lead characters are kind of white people with vaguely Hispanic well with Hispanic names. I mean you know yeah. like. <laughs> Um, Carmen Ibanez, you know, yeah, Ibanez, Juan Rico, and uh, what is it? Um, Dizzy is, is Fuentes, yeah, something yeah. like that, yeah. So, 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 you know, they all have they all have Hispanic names at least, but they're all played. I mean, I guess, I guess the real exotic character is that uh, Dizzy has curly red hair, so she's yeah exotic. There is enough awareness to kind of like a lot of the background actors do actually kind of do actually look kind of Hispanic, and you know, there there is that. But dear Jesus, you're following around. They're all white people from this one high school in Buenos Aires. Yeah. Um, and which might be Verhoeven like making some kind of statement about like cultural imperialism and you know this kind of 25th century future or something, but I think really it's it's just that kind of 90210 casting really you know yeah attractive white people. <laughs> I don't find it as quite as um, shallow and disjointed as you seem to. I will say narratively it isn't as strong as it should be, and it definitely is bogged down by this whole love story subplot, which should have been it, at least if not ended halfway through the film, it should have been nixed all together. Kind of like it just feels like it shouldn't be there because uh, it's not very satisfying. <laughs> at the end because um, I mean again Denise Richards she should have been in the space coffin I mean I mean she should have been gone the she's just she's fucking Ilsa of the SS for fuck's sakes like right, potentially right, right. and Dizzy's the only character of any heart or emotion in this thing and again she's going after fucking Johnny Automaton there um, but yeah um, I the thing I and I think again it might be studio interference because this is another movie like Johnny Mnemonic that had a lot of studio interference in it like there's things cut from it but it feels like Verhoeven just doesn't go far enough like I think that's the biggest problem here is he doesn't quite go far enough to highlight another sort of sci-fi classic Ender's Game Mm -hmm. Ender's Game essentially takes the same premise but it takes it to a much more interesting place I think where the alien menace turns out to be a lie the aliens are like almost defenseless Right. Com- well, compared- well, there, there is this. I mean, you know, without without giving away the ending of, yeah. can we give away the ending of Avengers Game? Well, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I saw mean, the movie. I mean, the, the book is well, thirty one years old, so you know, like, fuck it, right? You know, yeah, yeah. You know, Ender's Game is a book that I I read a bunch, you know, as a teenager, and anyway, the point to that is that the <laughs> the buggers. I.e., you know, the, uh, you know, which, let's talk about Orson Scott Card's implicit homophobia for a second. Yeah. <laughs> the enemy there is the buggers, you know. Oh, yeah. We, we know, we know exactly what you mean by that, Orson Scott Card. Um, the buggers are, uh, God. They even go. They they they've just all the ancillary material. They call them the formics now, but the original novel doesn't. It calls them the yeah the buggers. buggers so yeah. I'm just gonna call them the buggers because like fuck it. Basically, the ending of that kind of becomes, and I won't give away the real ending. Like there is there is this kind of interesting twist ending, but I mean the ending kind of becomes like really the the point isn't that the aliens are coming to invade and we're defending ourselves against invasion, but like we're going out and we're going to like kill all the aliens where they land. Yeah. You know. And that's kind of an interesting little twist, and then it kind of gets twisted even further, and there's there's interesting stuff going on there. Uh, this just, I don't know, there is a hint, uh, like when you get to the very end and they capture the brain bug, get scared, yeah. you know, and then everybody cheers. But at this point, it's too little too late, right? I mean, you know, you're literally three minutes from the end of the film, 
and you're and you're trying to like suggest this kind of like overly militaristic culture is like going after these you know kind of peaceful aliens, but you're not. It doesn't do anything with that idea. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. Have you seen the sequels to this? I have. You don't want to watch them. <laughs> okay, that was kind of. I was kind of curious because I like rewatched that. Like, maybe. Maybe once, like, devoid of this kind of, like, having to do this kind of big $100 million, you know, action movie, they can do something more interesting with it. But then I'd heard, like, terrible things about the sequels. No, uh, the, the sequels, uh, there's two There's two feature film sequels. There's an animated sequel, and there's a CGI spinoff animated series. All of them go the route of basically Alien and Aliens. Right. Uh, well, more specifically Aliens, where it's, you know, Space Marines fighting the alien menace. The only thing of note in the second uh, live-action sequel, they actually use the uh, power armor that's actually in the book, which they don't use in this movie. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. So, but that, that's the biggest thing. I mean, it's pretty obviously Verhoeven... I mean, Verhoeven lived through World War II, you know, as, mm-hmm. as kind of a kid in, in, in um, Amsterdam or in um, the Netherlands. You know, he says explicitly that this is him, you know, kind of making his kind of World War II movie. Except he doesn't do anything with the kind of World War II imagery. Again, going back to RoboCop, RoboCop is such a movie that's kind of about talking about, like, cop movie cliches. And it's kind of about, you know, interrogating that and kind of looking at that in in some kind of subtle satirical ways. What about this is in any way responding to the, like, billions of movies that have been made about World War II? I mean, there there was potential here, like, say what you will about Heinlein. One thing he does sort of emphasize in this book and other stories he's done where, you know, dealing with space marines of some sort, he's very interested in sort of focusing on the real lives of the foot soldier who's down in the trenches mm-hmm. fighting, like the, the person who's really putting their life on the line for their country or whatever they believe in, you know? There was the potential for Verhoeven to do that in this movie, and he really doesn't. He kind of sidesteps it which I think is uh, another failure where they don't even feel like they're they're a military unit. When you watch the battle scenes, they're just running around like fucking chickens with their heads cut off. Well, and, and, I, and I, think that, I think that Verhoeven is... I, I mean, I agree with that. I mean, they're literally like, hey, they have uh, infinite ammo. There's just there's mm-hmm. no ever a need to, to reload. And they, uh, you know, literally their like, tactical strategy is run up to the giant bug and like shoot it a bunch. Yeah. Like that, that's all their strategy ever amounts to is like line up. And I think that Verhoeven is trying to kind of use visual rhetoric to kind of tell how stupid this society is in, in terms of, in terms of doing that. The, the film also kind of wants us to revel in the violence. It wants us to kind of revel in the action scene and kind of think it's a cool action scene. And while you can kind of play that tone and make it work, I mean, there are certainly movies that can kind of both satirize the action and kind of be a good action movie. I, this doesn't work for me at all. I mean, it just it just kind of it falls really flat on both regards. I found myself bored during the action scenes for this. Yeah, they're, you know, they're, rewatching this, I'm just kind of like, yeah, just I don't know, it just it, it just feels flat to me. They have no, uh, they they fail on two levels. They have no flow to them in the first in the first place. Like you just you have no idea what's going on. And sometimes that can be good in a war movie, like because if you're trying to capture like the horror of war, the the, the total chaos of war, then of course you would probably gravitate more more towards something like uh, Saving Private Ryan, you know, or yeah. something along those lines. But or Apocalypse Now, like imagine, imagine this film as Apocalypse Now, you know? Yeah, yeah. And kind of uh, but I mean, just like imagine this film should have been more about Vietnam and not like World War Two. Sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. But, you know. 
but yeah, he he just doesn't. Um, and again, I I don't know how much of this is Verhoeven and how much of this is a studio telling him he can't go this far or whatever. But it just feels like he keeps holding back on everything. I mean, there's interesting ideas here in some parts uh, near the end where the reinforcements. There are a squad of fucking kids. Like they're literally a squad of fucking kids come to right. back up Johnny Rico's squad. And it's like, okay, that's kind of striking. Let's see you do something with that. Doesn't do anything with it. You see you see Neil Patrick Harris come back in the end. In with, a straight up SS uniform. Like SS uniforms, yeah. Yeah. And and I mean that's I mean again it's like it's like by the time we get to the end then suddenly they're throwing in these kind of like interesting ideas I mean you know really based around I mean uh, you know when you see like the squad of kids I kind of think about Slaughterhouse Five which is like subtitled mm-hmm. the Children's Crusade you know because you know basically make, I mean it's little I mean he's literally making the point that these are kids these aren't these aren't adults you know yeah. we sent kids off to, to war to get chewed up by this military machine. I would love to see that. I mean, not that I want to see a bunch of kids get, like, you know, murdered. Well, yeah, but, that, you know, but, like, but the, like that's an interesting idea, you know, that, that, but, but it comes yeah, that, to the very end. It speaks to the underlying desperation that might be there in the society, where sure. the society is not the fascist utopia that you see in the newscasts. In reality, it's a crumbling society that's fighting a very desperate war, that is now at the point where they have to send kids off up to fight. Who and you know those kids not did not go through boot camp. They did not go through that boot camp because <laughs> none of them would have survived it. So right, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, it's subtle. It's there. I mean, you can read it that way. I just like for me, it's just kind of like it doesn't work dramatically. It doesn't work yeah. as a as a film. You and I could write a better version of this. Like having seen this, and and maybe that is like the studio was fucking with Verhoeven and and Neumeier, and they just couldn't kind of do it. But it's also well, you know, I all well, I have to judge by yeah. is the version that I see in front of me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, the the movie version of Ender's Game, it's not perfect, and I would argue it's not a better movie than this. But it does expand a lot on those sort of ideas that you see hinted at in this movie. That one definitely shows that the sort of totalitarian fascist government that is present in on Earth in Ender's Game is crumbling. Like you can see the you can see right through the fucking holes in that society, right. as opposed to this one where the media is so omnipresent in what you're shown in the actual film that. You don't really see the holes unless fucking Verhoeven throws a couple scraps your way here and there. But otherwise, otherwise it just becomes broad satire where at the end it's bookended by another basically a propaganda film that is kind of a funny joke in a way. Because, you know, it's like, uh, now we're going to beat the bugs. But, I mean, really, are we? Because Johnny Rico has become a total, like, fascist. Like, he hasn't learned anything. If anything, he's regressed to even more of a, a fascist robot. He's going to lead the charge now, and a whole new generation of little fascists are going to follow Johnny Rico to battle, and there's no real indication, like, yeah, we got the brain bug, great, but there's no real indication that they're going to do any better against these bugs in the next battle, I mean. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're only just shoving things in its hole, like, and they're, like, drilling into it, you know, torturing it. Yeah, I get that. I mean, I'm I'm weakening a little bit, and kind of, like, I mean... I'm, I, I guess I'm sounding like I really hate this film, which isn't which isn't really the case. I just I feel like it's it's a missed opportunity. I, I yeah, I I get that. You're disappointed. I, I am disappointed in it as well, and in, in what it doesn't do. Right. I just I don't connect it to the novel at all. That the only way I can kind of do yeah. this is to just kind of disconnect it from that because, like, despite the fact that it's titled the same way and it's got all the same names of characters, this isn't the novel, and it's not really a realist. It's not really even a response to the novel. I know that they're like no. you know. 
oh, we're going to kind of use some of the ideas, and, and yeah, it's it's not a very sophisticated response to the novel. But if you view it as kind of its own thing, that's kind of off and kind of doing this kind of broad military satire, for me, it, again, it doesn't quite work as that either, just because it's kind of one note. I mean, you know, yes, military organizations are filled with fascists who just want to kill things and have no regard for them, anything but the people around them, and see the enemy as completely inhuman and um, will just bomb it to oblivion. Yes, I agree. Yeah. That's just reality. <laughs> Do you have anything more to say? You know, like, and, and, yeah. and I feel like the, it just keep, kind of keeps hammering that point home for, you know, two hours and ten minutes. You know? I have a feeling, because it's Verhoeven, that he was probably he was probably cut off at the knees at some point and was not mm-hmm. allowed to really make the movie he wanted to make. I, I get that impression. Like, I've never listened to a commentary on this or anything like that, so I don't know what his thoughts are on it, really. Right. It, it just feels like it, especially when you look at RoboCop in comparison, where RoboCop is, like, really digging into stuff. It's really kind of getting to the heart of some issues. This one just sort of, again, it just sort of tap dances over them a bit. And well, even like Total Recall, Total Recall is exploring this to yeah. to a to a to a greater degree. <laughs> I was sitting and I was thinking, like 1997, The Fifth Element does a better job at exploring <laughs> like what a fascist uh, military dictatorship would be than this. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and The Fifth Element is doing like 50 other things. You know, like I ha- there are issues with The Fifth Element. If you ask me, which is the better film, which is the better satire of like what a military you know dictatorship would be. The Fifth Element is way better, just if, if nothing else, because it's ripping off Brazil and the you know, like yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, and this this just this just kind of like it it feels kind of devoid of any of that kind of context. Uh, shall we shall we talk about uh, Dina Meyer a bit in this and kind of kind of get to something incredibly positive? Yeah, I love her in this. She's she's fantastic, amazing. Yeah. She is astonishingly good in this, uh, yeah. and. Two nude scenes, which yep. uh, I wouldn't mention except, like, <laughs> my God. Um, yeah. She's, she's amazing. Uh, that sex scene between her and uh, Johnny Rico in the tent. Yeah. That scene had an enormous effect on me as a 17-year-old. I'll just uh, kind of <laughs> say that. Let's, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that was that's the greatest performance that uh, Casper Van Dien gives in the film, I think, is uh, yeah. during that sex scene. Like, you actually buy him, like, oh, yeah, no, I get this. Yeah. I think I think anyone would have that performance if they were sharing a uh, bunk with uh, Dina Meyer. <laughs> well, kind of, you kind of get like the, the, he has some tenderness in him, and he has it like he's simultaneously like he's kind of like holding the shirt over her head, you know, and like teasing her. And I mean, there, there's this, there's this real like mind game he's kind of playing with her. Well, well when, um, you, when you think there, about there's it, a real, there's a real DS element to that scene, and I'm just gonna like leave it at that. Like, when, it's, yeah, it's, well, it's there, it's. When you think about it, her character, actually is the only one who brings out any sort of human qualities in Johnny Rico. And once mm-hmm. she dies, he becomes full on Nazi after that. Like he regresses mm-hmm. after that to full on Nazi. Like he, he does. He does absolutely. I mean, he just he just kind of he just get like uh, you know fuck them all. Like it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. You know, this is dead. Doesn't matter. Yeah, no, she's great. Even the uh, the bit in the shower scene mm-hmm. where uh, you know, oh he he. Uh, he came for a girl, you know. He he joined the he joined the military for a girl. Oh, is it you? And she's like, yeah, you know, like. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> well, they well they, they ask her why did you join up, and she just sort of smiles and looks away because she see she explicitly transferred to that unit just so she could be with it. And actually, she joined the military as well, just so she could uh, follow Rico into it because she was going to be a 
uh, ball player, football player. Oh, was that was that her? That was, was going to be that stated in the film. Like, yeah, she was that, be a football player? yeah, she was going to be a football player. So she she oh. she joins the military just just for him. Like the fact that she sells that character, like she she sells everything with that glaring character flaw that she's going to follow this fucking fucking Ken doll. Who she could find a million of these fucking meat sticks lying around that are perfectly serviceable if that's all she needed. I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, she's so much better than this guy. It's ridiculous, right? Yeah. Like, like the idea that like there was no one else in Buenos Aires that could like satisfy her desires, and she had to join the military in order to like get with this yeah. guy. Um, he he's a total dick to her. Like he's he's mm-hmm. sitting there and he like uh, she joins the military and is like, I was trying to get away from home, you know. And it's like, come on, Dina Meyer in nineteen ninety seven and followed me to where I am. I am not going to turn that away. No. Um, in case Dina Meyer's, you know, listening, I don't know if you're married or what's going on, but, you know, throw a guy a bone here. <laughs> <laughs> she's she's amazing in the film, mm-hmm. and, I mean, really, you're right. You're right. Like, I mean, this is she's such a nothing character on the page in the sense yeah. of, like you look at and and she's she's got this kind of conflicting motivations. I mean, and uh, I mean, it's kind of an issue that uh, Denise Richards fights as well. I mean, she's just terrible. So you know, it's not so much that Denise Richards is. I mean, she is terrible in the film, but she's terrible partly because the character isn't written. Like, there's no character. Mm-hmm. There. It's just kind of like a pretty girl who's like wanting to date this guy you know well um, and i i get the feeling that she doesn't really care who she ends up with it, it, it all all it in and neither honestly i don't think casper van Dien really does either in the end of things i think it just ends up that hey all of our other available partners are now dead so i guess we're right. gonna fuck i do get a sense that he is attracted to dina meyer to dizzy i do get the sense that the character is kind of like warming to her. I mean, I, I do think that he's he sells that, like that he sees something in her as they're um, kind of going through military training together and that he kind of bonds with her that way. I like that element to it. And then, you know, he just needs like that push in the right direction <laughs> by by his former teacher to like, hey, go fuck the redhead. That's yeah. essentially what he says, you know. <laughs> Make that 20 minutes, Rico. Yeah, which... <laughs> And, and of course, it would be it would be a, a beacon of awesomeness, Michael Ironside, who would who would have that sound advice, very sound advice that you should use in real life as well. If you have the opportunity to fuck the redhead, you fuck the redhead. That's and, definitely... well, Dina Meyer at that. Like, if you have mm-hmm. the opportunity, you know, to to have consensual relations with Dina Meyer, you should do so. It's um, always been my motto. <laughs> and motto for life, really. Yeah. Um, although I don't know that twenty minutes would suffice for me, I don't. I don't know that I could. You know, that, no. They they got a, the uh, Casper Van Dien's character. He's Johnny Rico. He says that should be enough. And it's like okay. And she's excited. She's like yeah, yeah, yeah. No. And she's like and again she sells it. She's like oh yeah, yeah. I can. And she's like pulling off her pants and yeah, like, we can yeah, make it work. <laughs> we can make it work. Yeah. It's a. I mean, it is a fun little moment. I, I yep. do. I do appreciate that. But like, that's just. Uh, yeah, that has nothing to do with the rest of the film. No, you know? no. I mean, we 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 have to wait so long to get to that moment where it it just again it drags down. Interesting thing. Interesting note here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Verhoeven confirmed apparently on the commentary of the DVD that the rumor that he shot the shower scene nude himself 
to make the the actors feel more comfortable, which I don't know how that would work. But hey, apparently he did. Him and the uh, the director of photography, Yost Vakno, uh, undressed while they were filming that shower scene. That's awesome. I mean, I honestly, I think that's fair. I, I'm an actor, and I'm like, you know, I, if you want me to do a nude scene, you got to be nude. I mean, he's not on camera. I'm like hell. Like if I was if I was a director, and I'm like, yeah. I, I'm shooting a scene where a bunch of people are nude. I'll strip down. That's fine. And, and if you're an actor in that scene and you see Verhoeven and then you look over at Dina Meyer, you're like, wow, I didn't think <laughs> Dina Meyer could get any more attractive. All of a sudden, yeah, she's way more attractive now. All of a sudden, how, how the fuck did that happen? Or, or Kester Van Dien or... or uh, yeah. anybody, anybody in that shower, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what, Jake Busey? Jake Busey, you know? Uh, yeah. Jake Busey, oh, the, that toothy smile. Oh, boy. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of my favorite elements of the film is the fact that uh, Jake Busey's character plays the violin. Like, yeah. there is this hint of, like, this guy has this, like, kind of deep inner life, you know, where he, like, he sits and he plays the violin, but then, like, he's subsumed in this fascist dictatorship, you know? <laughs> there, there, there really is this hint of that. The film does nothing with that, except, like, he just, like, plays the violin, and the violins are all made of plastic, and they're neon-colored, you know, apparently. Just one more bit about the shower scene. I actually really like that scene. I remember really liking it, like, kind of as a teenager watching it, and uh, it was one of the scenes that I remember. Just because it actually is, like, a moment where you kind of get to hear characters talk about their motivations, you know? Yeah. You, you, it sells the world, you know? Like, there's this, you know, oh, I want to get into politics, and the only way to do that is to be a citizen, and I have to join the military. Yeah, and she's the girl who fucks up and shoots the other guy's head off, and then you see her walking away, Drum yep. of the military, so her entire life is destroyed right there because she can exactly, join exactly. back and yeah. And then the other the other girl's like, oh, I want to have kids and to get a license. It's easy to get a license if I uh, you know join the military. And you know that's one policy of this fascist regime. I actually agree with. I do not. I, I'm not going to support the fact that uh, people would have to have uh, military service in order to have children. Personally, but I just no, I, I support they need a license. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I won't go that far either, but uh, okay. you know. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, but but it sells the world, right? And it, and it really is like it's the it's almost like the one moment in the film where you actually hear human reactions to things. Yeah, where they're actually human characters on the screen. And I think that maybe that's the issue is that they they're trying to push this satire. They're trying to push this idea. A, they're not pushing it far enough. But in trying to push it, they turn everybody into a caricature. And then once you're just surrounded with a bunch of caricatures, you don't get any kind of human interaction. And yeah. Good actors could have sold it. Dina Meyer, the reason that we're like praising her to this degree is because she actually sells a human character within this broad satire yeah. because she's amazing. Uh, and no one else is really able to do that except for, I mean, even Michael Ironside. I mean, like he's great in the film, but you don't get him as a person. You get him just as, you know, this, this caricature. I think his choice in that, though, is perfect, though, at the same time, because he, he comes off as that cold professor who refuses to open up to his uh, students uh, on yeah. any sort of personal level. Because you see um, when Casper Van Dien talks to him at the party, like, I'm going to join up. And and Michael Ironside is trying to walk away from him. Like, yeah, yeah, great, buddy. <laughs> Fuck off. I got me, I got me some like, tail. Hey, I, got, I got other things to do, like going yeah, and fucking I, someone tonight rather than like, yeah, listening to your ass I got me, I got me I a woman you a who... Seat, go fuck yourself, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, got, I got me a woman who wants to uh, rub my uh, my stub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. I'm gonna go well, stub fuck somebody. You know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna take my stump and uh, yeah, fist some uh, Brazilian <laughs> <what> whore. <laughs> yeah, 
Um, yeah. It's, it's great. It's okay. It's worth watch. I mean, it's interesting, but it's not good. It's kind of where I land on Starship Troopers, you know. I would say it's good, but it's not interesting enough. Is where I'd land on it. Yeah. I, so that that's where I kind of that's where I kind of fall. I, I'd say it's it's a lot of missed opportunities, and but at the same time, it's it's kind of fun. It, it doesn't necessarily work all that well as an action movie. Like we said, the action scenes are kind of scatterbrained and don't make much sense. Broadly, it's entertaining. I still find it to be, and I think Dina Meyer and then Clancy Brown and Michael Ironside give really great performances that are worth watching. In that regards, I can still recommend it quite a bit. So, Lots of interesting actresses in this. I mean, Neil Patrick Harris is good in this. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of the, you know, kind of that between Doogie Howser and becoming like a, a an adult actor. So this is kind of in his middle period. Yeah. Um, he's good in this. He's actually kind of able to sell this character. I mean, you know, he's, he's kind of on the right page in terms of selling the satire. You know, Clancy Brown. Clancy Brown is is phenomenal in it. Yeah, and, you know, there, there's no question. <laughs> How we feel about the characters, not even uh, Jake Busey. I think Jake Busey is like Jake Busey's you know, good. Yep, he sells he sells it in interesting character. I like that. I like that Clancy Brown. His character. He obviously did something like struck an officer or something to get struck back down to private so he could join the war effort because they weren't going to let him go and fight unless he got demoted. <laughs> so he also did that. I, I think he, I think he just uh, like accepted a decommission. Essentially, I think that was the, you know, that was. Oh, the, might might have been that too. But oh, uh, his superior in in the training camp is what's his name from Breaking Bad? There, Dean Norris. Yeah, yeah, Dean, yeah, Dean Norris. <laughs> and uh, Timothy Ombudsman, who was in a couple of episodes of Deadwood, and who was a lead, um, one of the lead characters in uh, Psych. He's in the film. He's in one of the ads. Is the like, uh, are you psychic? You know, kind oh, of guy yeah, with the third yeah, eye. Yeah. You know, it's a, that's the guy. Oh. I mean, um, the captain in the is, uh, is the, the Roger Young, the woman is, from uh, Spaceballs, the nurse. She, oh, she's, she's the nurse in Spaceballs. The nurse from Spaceballs in that oh in that sequence God. with. <laughs> yeah, she's the the hot nurse. I I know her as uh, <laughs> I know her as um, George Costanza's uh, fiance from uh, Seinfeld. Oh, the one that yeah. licks the stamps. Yeah, the one that licks the stamps. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, no. Sorry, yeah, now I gotta go back and watch baseballs, you know, which what yeah, the, the one that Doctor uh, Schlotkin sticks his uh, face no, toward. I, I, I totally, uh, I, I'm kind of remembering it now. I'm like, oh, is that the same woman? No, I know I have to go back and rewatch that. There are a lot of like interesting faces in this. Like you, mm-hmm. you kind of watch it, and I'm like, oh my god, like I know a lot of these actors, but yeah, I can't. The, the the term I keep coming back to is glorious mess. There's a good movie buried in here. But this is mm-hmm. not for me. This isn't a very good movie. You know? Yeah, that's fair. I, I can't argue that. I, I just know that I I like it enough, even with its missed opportunities, that it's enough for me. You know, to like recommend and rewatch once in a while. So, sure. yeah, sure. yeah. All right. I uh, I think we can move on now. Uh, we're going to be coming up with Django. Is going to be our next episode. We're going to be talking about the original film with starring Franco Nero, and we'll talk a little bit about the Quentin Tarantino, well, not really remake, but takes its namesake anyway. And we're going to be talking about a lot of other films that sort of rip off the Django name as well. And that'll be the first entry into our Spaghetti Western series, so that should be a lot of fun. Daniel, tell people where they can find you on the internet. You can find all my podcasts at oispaceman.com. That's oispaceman.com. I'm on Twitter at Daniel E. Harper. If you like hearing me talk about Robert Heinlein, I have a brand new podcast, which will uh, be out. The first episode of that will be out by the time this episode goes out, where uh, my buddy, uh, 
hopefully future guests of this podcast, James Murphy and I, mm-hmm. sat and chatted about Robert Heinlein's 1961 novel, Stranger in a Strange Land, for about two hours. Podcast is called Consider the Ray Gun. That's one of our podcast threads. <laughs> and um, we're going to be talking about mostly classic science fiction novels. So uh, nice. a lot of things here and there. Um, this is going to be fun. This is a great episode. I was editing it earlier today. It's kind of a casual chat, but if you want to listen to me talk a lot in a lot more detail about Robert Heinlein's politics and his uh, kind of some of the interesting stuff that he had to say about sexuality later in his career, uh, go check that out. It's uh, it's worth a listen, I think. Awesome. Yeah, and I'll also mention that um, Pex Lives just released an episode. James Murphy's course, is uh, one of the hosts of Pex Lives. They just did an episode on the Man With No Name trilogy, Sergio Leone films. Um, so if you want a little companion piece to our eventual Spaghetti Western series that we're getting into here, because we're not going to be covering those films in our uh, initial look at Spaghetti Westerns, uh, I would suggest you go over there, because I listened to it uh, last night, and they had a very good chat about those films. So... I've not listened to that one yet, but I know that uh, Jane, uh, Jane was uh, on that one as well, and Jane mm-hmm. is someone who's been on uh, Always Space Man a couple of times at this point. So yeah, uh, check that out. Yeah, uh, so you can find all of our stuff at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find our YouTube, our iTunes, uh, our Facebook page, which of course they must be destroyed on site. On Facebook, join up there. Leave all your feedback, comments there. That's the best place to get in touch with us. And until the next episode where we get into our spaghetti western series uh i'll say thank you daniel for joining me tonight and thank you everyone yeah and thank you everyone for listening and uh we'll see you guys later bye-bye cheers
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find links to us at iTunes and YouTube, as well as our Facebook group link, which is the best way to get in touch with us. We welcome all comments, questions, movie review suggestions, and criticisms, and we do our best to respond to everyone. You can also find us at Daniel's recently launched oispaceman.com, where you can find his sci-fi theme podcasts about Doctor Who and Red Dwarf. Thank you. Drive through.